Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is Dan Savage. He's been writing the widely syndicated sex advice column Savage Love for 20 years. Recently, along with his husband Terry, he founded the It Gets Better video project in response to the rash of teen suicides by kids who were bullied in school for being gay or being perceived as gay. He's also the author of four books. Thanks for being here, Dan. Thanks for having me. First of all, why are you in Bloomington? It's a secret. (laughs) I'm writing a book uh, about this human sexuality thing that we've all heard so much about lately. And uh, for a chapter in the book, I took a human sexuality class here taught by Debbie Herbenek. (laughs) Well, so many people think of you as a sex advice guru. So it's funny in a way to think of Dan Savage taking formal sexuality classes because it feels like you know it all. But I don't know it all. And I've uh, actually never taken a human sexuality class. So it really was after 20 years of writing Savage Love, about time. And I learned a lot. Uh, All mad props and credit to to Debbie uh, and her really amazing uh, class in human sexuality. I took it with a bunch of mostly uh, college freshmen, 18-year-olds. And the things that I learned, the cowper's gland, who knew about the cowper's gland? Uh, Debbie knew and (laughs) sex researchers here at uh, IU knew, but I didn't know. I'm curious about your new book. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Well, I'm curious about it, too. Uh, Now that I've taken the class, I have to start writing the book. Um, It's about human sexuality as lived and experienced and the way we torment ourselves with this false idea of what normal is and what everyone else is doing and the standard we try to hold ourselves to, uh, that if you actually look at the sex that any given person is having on a Saturday night, what we think of when we say picture normal sex uh, is so rare, so freakishly rare, uh, that the quote-unquote normal people are the weirdos. You've actually written a number of books. People may or may not know that. You've written four. One was about uh, getting married to your boyfriend. Another one was about the two of you adopting your son. So is this a case of the personal is political, or does your life just make for really good stories? <laughs> the personal is political. I really do think, not to flate myself too hard, I'm not that limber, Um I really do think that those two books uh, about marriage and about uh, starting a family as a gay male couple kind of documented a moment in time um, for particularly gay men because lesbians, you know, have been having children forever. Uh, Oscar Wilde had kids. Gay men have been having children forever. But gay male couples really weren't having children and weren't adopting until, you know, 15 years ago or so uh, when the gaby boom started. And, uh, you know, there's – you know, when I came out uh, 16, 17 years old and – 1980, when you were telling your parents you were gay, it meant two big things. You were never going to get married. You were never going to have children. And those were not possibilities for gay men. And within, you know, a couple of decades, uh, you know, within my lifespan uh, as an out gay man, those, both those things became possible for gay men. And both those things required kind of a massive uh, adjustment in worldview uh, and, uh, you know, a personal assessment of what it means to be uh, a gay man uh, or and then a parent and a gay man and then married. And I think that I hope those books with a you know good deal of humor and insight kind of captured those moments for, for gay men are, are going to be, an, you know, a, an important document. As you mentioned in your book, you're wearing a skull wedding <laughs> ring that your son picked out. Yeah, my partner and I uh, had a 10-year anniversary party. We invited our family and friends. The invitation said, no gifts, no toasts. And we decided to get married shortly before it but not tell anybody. So everyone was at a wedding reception, but they didn't know it was a wedding reception. So our wedding where we ran up to Vancouver and got married was all very impromptu. And we were literally driving in the car and we called the, the officiant uh, whatever that person was called in Canada, and uh, said, all right, I think we have everything needed. She said, don't forget rings. And we were like, like, how unprepared culturally were we for this moment? We hadn't even thought of rings. So we pulled off the highway and stopped at sort of a rock and roll jewelry store. Uh, and my son picked out these skulls, these these like rocker rings with skulls on them because till death do you part. And every time we look at the ring, he wanted us to remember that we can't leave each other until we're dead and maybe not even then. That's morbid, but fabulous. It is. I think everyone should have a wedding ring with a big fat skull on it. It works for my boyfriend. On him, it looks rock and roll because he's so rock and roll looking. <laughs> and on me, I've ha- I wear my ring turned around so he can't see the skull. Oh. Because on me, it looks like I'm a white supremacist. It looks <laughs> like a Nazi death head ring because <laughs> oh, no. I just don't look rock and roll. Oh, so and a not skull the ring on me gets yeah. misinterpreted on airplanes, so I turn it around. Nice. 
do you think we'll see gay marriage across the country in your lifetime? I think we'll be surrounded in my lifetime. I think we're going to see uh, full civil equality for gay and lesbian people, uh, also known as marriage rights and everything else, uh, in Mexico, all of Mexico, uh, and most of Latin America, and all of Canada, uh, before we get it here. Uh, because, as I like to say, Australia got the convicts, and Canada got the French, and we got the Puritans. And we will be wrestling with them always. Uh, you know, we're always last in America when it comes to this uh, freedom thing. The, the Brits did away with slavery 40 years before we did with a vote in Parliament, and we had to have a war. And then we had to have Jim Crow for 100 years, and we really didn't do away with slavery uh, until the 60s and 70s. And culturally, we're still wrestling with its legacy. It's going to be the same thing for gays and lesbians. Uh, it's going to be the same thing for uh, a female president. You know, Pakistan has had a female president. Uh, the Philippines and, you know, Israel. Everyone's going to beat us to it. And when it finally happens here, well, you know, America and its traditional style will pay itself no end of compliments about what how wonderful, what it means, how wonderful it is. And someone's going to have to jump up on a chair and scream, you know, Benazir Bhutto, Corazon Aquino, Golda Meir, we're last, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Angela Merkel, we're last. It's going to be the same thing with gay marriage. We'll get there eventually, but it'll be embarrassingly late compared to the rest of the world. Well, let's talk some other current events type issues, something that's in the news, don't ask, don't tell. So the Pentagon announced that they were now going to accept openly gay recruits, but federal appeals court put a freeze to that. Yeah, federal appeals court just thought, hey, why not put a freeze on that? No, the Obama DOJ went to the federal appeals court and asked for an emergency stay uh, because of the enormous potential consequences, of which there have been none. And American soldiers are serving side by side in Afghanistan and Iraq with openly gay British and Canadian soldiers right now. So if the, the presence of openly gay soldiers is so deleterious, uh, we would already have that evidence. It's not. It's a lie. And it's not judges. It's the Obama administration's Department of Justice that is uh, dragging this out endlessly. Well, with all this confusion that's happening around this, are we closer to seeing the end of this or is it just going to keep going? I think we're close to seeing the end of this. And this is uh, the low-hanging fruit in the gay lesbian civil rights movement. This fruit hangs so low it's practically a potato. 70% plus of the country wants to see uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell repealed. Uh, broad majorities of conservatives, of independents, of Tea Partiers, uh, and of course liberals and progressives and Democrats all want to see it repealed. It is not controversial, uh, except among some ancient Republican senators, uh, agents of intolerance like John McCain. Uh, and, you know, we'll get there, and I think we'll get there pretty soon. And that and marriage really are kind of the, the final things we need to achieve to, to really get very close to full civil equality. And, of course, ENDA. Yeah. Yeah, but those really are the two big issues, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and Gay Marriage, and they're all over the news And they're going to be all over the news forever. You know, one of the things that so amuses me about anti-gay conservatives is if you really can sit down and talk to them, and I've done it. <laughs> I don't recommend it. It's not bad for the blood pressure. What they object most to is hearing about the existence of gays and lesbians, about the, the newspaper stories. And, you know, they can't turn on the TV without their kids being reminded that we exist. And that may put it in the minds of their gay kids that they can actually come out one day and have a life. And they want to live in a world where they hear about us a whole lot less. Okay, well, give us everything we want and you will hear about us a whole lot less. The reason we're in the news all the time is not because we're just so fabulous. We're in the news all the time because you're denying us our full civil equality and we are demanding it. That conflict keeps it in the news. You want us out of the news? You want to hear a whole lot less about us? Give us everything we want because we're not going to stop demanding and asking. I was in uh, the United Kingdom for uh, a summer a few years ago and you know, I'm reading all the papers over there and watching the news and it occurs to me that I'm not reading anything about me, about the gay thing. And it just – we're just like, oh, well, of course not because they don't throw gay people out of the military and they have employment protections and they have uh, – civil partnerships. They have marriage and everything but name. Um, and so gay people there really do have everything they want. And so there isn't this endless sturm and drang and conflict and wrestling and arguing about whether gay people deserve their full civil equality. They've got it. Same thing in Canada now. Probably much to the chagrin of the people that you were talking to, uh, gay people are even more in the spotlight these days because of the It Gets Better project, 
which is a really fabulous project if people haven't heard about it. It was your response to the news of all the suicides by teenagers who are being bullied for being gay or being perceived as gay. And this touched home in Indiana because Billy Lucas was one of the the first casualties. Billy Lucas was the reason we started it. Um, we started the campaign and we registered the domain on September 15th after Billy Lucas's death. It took us a week to get the video out. In that week, we uh, after our video was up, we found out about Asher Brown and Seth Walsh and Cody Barker in Wisconsin. And then, of course, Tyler Clemente, which made uh, the whole issue explode nationally. Um, but it was really Billy Lucas's suicide that prompted, that compelled us to, to do something. And he was from Greensburg, Indiana. Greensburg, Indiana. Which is just up the street from us here. I want to read something that you said in your podcast when you were starting this and introducing it to people. We have the ability to talk to these kids right now. We don't need the permission of their parents or their school principals to talk to them. Today, we have the power to give these kids hope. We have the tools to reach out to them and tell our stories to let them know that it gets better. And what came from that is a YouTube channel where people can submit their videos talking about their lives and talking about perhaps what happened to them in the past, but how they persevered through it. And you were you were the first person to add a video, obviously, with your partner, Terry. Right. The response has been tremendous. You know, I've always felt I felt this way after hearing about Billy Lucas's suicide and Justin Aberg's before him uh, in Minnesota this summer. The reaction as a gay adult, it's always, God, I wish I could have talked to that kid. Just been able to tell him it gets better. And you would think that knowing you would never get permission, knowing you would never be invited to talk to these kids. Um because it would bring charges of recruitment. You're trying to brainwash kids. You're trying to seduce them. And so, you know, the deal culturally has been uh, for gays and lesbians, you're, you're ours to torture until you're 18. And then you can get it. Then you graduate from high school and you can do what you want. Uh, and we can't touch you anymore. But you can't do anything about the kids we're currently torturing. That was the deal. Uh, and we obviously weren't the only uh, gay, lesbian, bi, or trans people out there who felt like, God, I wish I could talk to these kids, but I'll, no one will ever give me permission. And my partner and I, by giving ourselves permission to talk to them, it kind of sparked this thing where all, everybody realized all at once that they didn't need the permission anymore than we did to, to, to talk and tell their stories. And, you know, not just tell their stories of bullying. We were really clear that we didn't just want people, kids who are being bullied know what being bullied is like. So there's a lot of videos where people, you know, heartbreaking tales of uh, what they suffered. But the most important part of the video is where they're at now, how they got through it, how they coped, what their strategies were. Um, a lot of videos from people talking about things they did to improve the schools they were in uh, or their situation. So, you know, making it better and not just waiting it out for it to get better. But really what kids need to see and have disproved for them, someone particularly like Billy Lucas, you look at where these suicides are taking place, Greensburg, Indiana, unincorporated Houston County, some small town in California I can't pronounce, Stoikin, Wisconsin. These kids are isolated. Uh, they don't see openly gay, successful, happy, content adults, even just in passing in a restaurant or on the street. I know when I was a kid, I grew up in Chicago in the 70s, and every once in a while I would see gay people and think, I'll be all right. Because I would see like a gay couple in a restaurant or a group of gay people on a bus or walking the street on the subway, and I think, all right, th I'll be fine like one day. I'll, I can join that. But in Greensburg, what could he see? And so to show your life and show your joy, we, that's the thing we kept saying to people. We want you to share your joy, not just your pain. They know it hurts. Share your joy. Because with a 15-year-old gay kid who kills himself, what he's saying is he can't picture a future with enough joy in it to compensate for the pain now, right? Yeah. And I think that's really radical and revolutionary and subversive, not just the whole like, not waiting for your permission anymore to talk to your kid and save your kid's life. Uh, and we're going over your head, mom and dad, and over your head, bigoted school administrators, over your head, bigoted religious leaders, quote unquote. And quote unquote's for the not bigoted, it's for the leader. And we're going to talk directly to your kids and we're going to show them that what they're being told about being gay and lesbian or bi and trans is not true. You're all over the place in the media because of this. So what's it like being the face of this project, sort of being the face of the movement? 
Well, now Joel Burns is the face. He's the uh, city councilman in Fort Worth, Texas, who made one of the most moving videos. Has more views than mine and Terry's now. Terry's really delighted about that. You know, some people don't like that it's me because um, some people don't like me because I'm, you know, I write the dirtiest sex column in the history of sex columns. And, uh, you know, my partner and I are in a couple of lawyers. And because I'm running the whole project, we have videos from porn stars and we have videos from drag queens and we have videos from guys who – one really funny one I think is really delightful. These two guys who are, you know, white gay guys talking to gay boys, their videos for gay boys. And at one point they stop and go, oh, we should probably think about what gay boys are, 15-year-old gay boys are interested in and not just talk about the stuff we're interested in. And then suddenly the room is full of guys in their underwear, like really hot, uh, cute guys, like just sort of milling around in their underwear. Uh, and people have asked me to take all these videos down. And even to edit and censor my video with Terry, because we talk about how we met and we talk about the dirty things we said to each other, the flirty, dirty, cheesy things we said to each other. And I've gotten notes from people saying, oh, that, you know, that's the wrong thing to say and it makes us look sex obsessed. Well, you know what? One of the things these kids have to look forward to is flirting and meeting people and saying silly things to each other in bars and uh, maybe meeting your life partner that way. Uh, and sex is – and relationships and fun – and cute people, uh, whatever, however you define that, you know, conventionally attractive or unconventionally attractive, that's something that's worth sticking around for. That is one of the ways it gets better. And because I'm running this, we're not going to censor all of that, that joy. Like one of the things that brings you joy as an openly gay adult is your sex life. Well, in addition to the videos by the porn stars, there's a video that I found really compelling by a lesbian and a bisexual grade school, their grade school teachers or high school teachers who did their video uh, with masks on because they might they can't be fired. Be out. Can't be out and can't It's like a hostage kids. video. And it's very powerful. It is very powerful. They they show flip cards. So you don't even hear their voices. They do flip cards where they, they make their statement. And what they're saying is, look around your school. We're there. Even if you don't think that there's any teachers there, just look around for one of us. And you can come to us, but we can't come to you. And we can't be out. And that's really powerful. And it's a message that I think kids need to hear. And I think it's a message that straight people need to hear about uh, part of the problem is that there is no enda, that you can be fired for being gay or lesbian in most parts of the country. And, you know, if those teachers uh, could be out without being retaliated against the queer kids in that school and your kid could be one of the queer kids in that school, you don't want to find out the day your kid committed suicide that your kid was the queer kid in the school who had no support and no one to turn to. But your kid could be the queer kid in the school who could go to that person if she could be out, if it was known that there were safe spaces, lesbian teachers, gay teachers that they could rely on. Um, it's really a heartbreaking video. Yeah, that, that was very powerful. There was one posted just yesterday, too, that's interesting, sort of in the same vein as it gets better, but I don't think part of the project by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So She did this, say it gets better. It she, It'll yeah, get better. She uses the phrase, will so get we, better. we qualified it and stuck it on the website. I mean, it's reached that far. That's yeah, amazing. Four weeks ago, it was me and my boyfriend sitting in a bar. Another thing that ticked off a bunch of people. I got a bunch of emails about that. Was that a bar? Oh, bars are bad and alcohol is bad and drinking is bad. It's like, we met in a bar. How many? My parents met in a bar. But anyway, it went from me and my boyfriend having cocktails and talking in a bar about how we met and swapping dirty jokes and talking about our joy to Hillary Clinton uh, in four weeks. Um, and I really do think it's a it's a watershed moment culturally where people are having to recognize that the religious right is lying uh, and that, you know, this whole – hopefully what's – if there's anything besides saving lives that this will accomplish, most important thing is saving lives, giving these kids hope, giving them coping mechanisms, um, giving them advice about what they can do. That's the most important thing. If it can finally give the lie to being gay as a choice, because that's what the religious right – now they're getting – you know, they went very quiet for a while. Now they're starting to speak up. Um, and they would have us believe that uh, Asher Brown, 13 years old, chose to be gay. And then it was an easier choice for Asher Brown to put a bullet in his head than just to choose to be straight again at 13. Let's talk about some of the critics. Some critics say that this video project isn't addressing the real problem, which is a culture of hate in kids, culture of hate in high school and grade schools and the bullying so what do you say to those people? You're right. This is triage. 
this program, the, the, this project. This is, doesn't solve. I wrote a piece about it. Doesn't solve the problem of bullying. It provides hope. It provides again coping strategies and mechanisms. It provides a little bit of advice. It provides a shoulder to cry on. You know, my brother was more brutally bullied in grade school than I was, and I called him because I was thinking about it at the gym. I just called him to say, you know, I remember that you had it worse in grade school than I did, and you were straight, and you were more brutally bullied than I was. I was bullied, but it was worse for you. And he said, um, this is why I love him so much, he said, yeah, that's that, you're right, but I had mom and dad, and you didn't. So many LGBT kids have no one to turn to. Um, they're bullied at school, bullied at home, bullied at church on Sundays. They don't have a shoulder to cry on. If nothing else, this project provides thousands and thousands and thousands of shoulders to cry on. One of the the unexpected uh, sort of benefits of this, the way we did it, where we didn't say send us raw video and we'll post it to YouTube. We said create your own YouTube account, post your video, and then we'll put it on the website. Was it anybody who responds to a video, writes a comment on a video? It goes right to the person who made the video, not to us. So there's all these people out there who are hearing from teenagers and young adults who are in the exact same situation that they were in, that they talk about in their videos. And they are responding to them, emailing with them, referring them to the Trevor Project, giving them advice. They are being that shoulder to cry on that so many LGBT kids lack because they can't turn to their parents uh, because their parents are homophobes or because they're afraid they might be homophobes. So, yeah, it doesn't solve bullying. We need safe schools legislation. We need anti-bullying programs. And we need arrests and prosecutions of kids who assault other kids. Uh, if an 18-year-old goes to a, a mall and beats up an old lady, he gets arrested. That 18-year-old goes to school and beats up a 13-year-old, he doesn't even get suspended. Something really wrong there. We also need to recognize that we can't snap our fingers and have safe schools legislation, anti-bullying programs, and uh, crimes treated like crimes everywhere all at once all across the country. And in the meantime, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about these kids who are right now in these extreme situations where they're bullied, alone, isolated, miserable, and thinking about suicide? These critics of the project, you can't tell me it's illegitimate to reach out to those kids and just say, hang in there. I made it. You can make it. Here's how I got through it. Here's where I am now. Hang in there. You know, I don't know how we got from Harvey Milk saying somebody will open a newspaper and see a story about an openly gay person being elected to the San Francisco City Council uh, and take hope and that can change a life to how dare you and this doesn't do what this doesn't do everything so you shouldn't do it at all. Is that what the critics would have? It's like pull the whole site down because it doesn't solve the problem. Well, you know, the breast cancer march didn't end breast cancer. Right? Should we not have Breast Cancer Awareness Month and Breast Cancer Marches? They're just grousing these people. They're not going to stop bullying these videos. And unfortunately, they're not going to stop suicides. No. And there was news of another gay suicide recently. So, But a gay kid who didn't commit suicide isn't going to make the news. And I'm hearing every day from teenagers uh, who are watching these videos and taking hope. And most heartbreakingly, I'm hearing from parents who have felt helpless watching their kids be bullied for being LGBT. And they're sitting down at computers with their kids to watch these videos together. And they're telling me that they're taking hope. Yeah, there are still going to be suicides. Um, you know, we pass hate crimes legislation, there's still going to be hate crimes. Um, you pass anti-discrimination legislation, there's still going to be discrimination. It's just there's a, a, a remedy then. There's uh, something you can do about it. Yeah, I have no illusions that this will save every life. Uh, but I... I believe, I know it already has saved lives. I wondered, since it's so prevalent in the news these days, is the media grabbing at this as a story to focus on gay suicide? Or should we call this an epidemic? We don't know that it's an epidemic. This could just be a confluence of, you know, shark attacks Gay teenagers four to six times more likely to commit suicide. Suicide is a problem. Bullying is a problem. Um, I shouldn't compare it to shark attacks because that's just a media creation. But there was there was this you know spate of either suicides breaking through to the national media, and it it took off. And we did this before Asher, before Seth, before Cody, before Raymond, before Tyler, because. You know, Justin Aberg's suicide and Billy Lucas's suicide were bad enough. My boyfriend and I were taking action after hearing about those two. If the media needed a handful more to really respond and raise people's awareness, 
okay. It's a case of, you know, okay, the media is paying attention. We're going to grouse about that. And if they were ignoring these suicides, we would grouse about that. Let's talk about another case in which you rallied support for a cause. So this is just, it gets better, is just another example of you sort of rallying the troops. You put a call out to your readers on the Savage Love column and in the podcast to contact the Itawamba Agricultural <laughs> High School in Mississippi, the school that's famous now for not allowing Constance McMillan to take her girlfriend to prom. And you wrote in your post, be respectful, but be relentless. And it became this huge national story, in part because your readers responded and how. So what's it like having this big mass of people just sort of I call of them waiting. my flying monkeys. <laughs> really? Yeah, we're just waiting for your order. People want to take action. And I know back from when I was in ACT UP uh, and ran an ACT UP chapter um, in a state that you know most people want you to break down like here's the problem. Here's something you can do about it. Jump in and do it. And – you're done. You know, the problem often with activism is a lot of activists feel like, well, unless you're willing to do all the work and really commit 24-7 to this, go away. We don't need you. You're obviously a poser or an interloper. And then you can't harness the, you know, good intentions, energy, uh, goodwill and uh, power of people who can only spare a little bit of time, right? And I've never – when I ran ACT UP, I didn't feel that way. I was just like, we'll run it. We'll make sure we're being honest to you and – really inform you and then we'll tell you that you can do this little thing. It's not going to take all day. Uh, we ran a uh, ran an ACT UP chapter in Madison, Wisconsin where they were feeding inmates with HIV uh, horrible uh, dietary supplements of white bread with sugar, peanut butter and sugar jelly on it and it was making these guys worse and sicker. And so we just started delivering a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to the governor's office every day. Uh, the first day we delivered hundreds of them. We threw them all over the office. And then we just kept coming back every day and delivering more sandwiches. And all we did, we, we, we met people at the Capitol with the sandwich and just said, you, here's your day. You come. You deliver the sandwich. So it wasn't the same like four of us showing up every day with the sandwich. So it just it ended up looking like there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who were paying attention who, and they had to do something. And, you know, we sent people in in drag. We sent people in in Alphysalus Chaps. We sent people in families. We sent people in. But all we said was – Noon, meet us in the Capitol. We'll hand you a sandwich. You walk in. It'll take two minutes. And you did your you, – you helped. You did something. And so to like say, OK, here's the school. Here's what they're doing. Here are their email addresses. They're saying that allowing Constance to go to prom with her girlfriend is going to be a distraction. Let's show them what a distraction looks like. And I bet they're still receiving emails. I hope so. And they can choke on them. What they did to Constance McMillan – I recognized right away. I heard the story and ran to my computer and ran to, redid the podcast because I just looked at that and went, they canceled prom. They're painting a bullseye on her back and she is going to get bullied and harassed. And that was my first column about it. And I ordered all my flying monkeys to jump on, let Constance take her girlfriend to prom the Facebook page when it had 800 people on it. And you know, within a week, it had 200,000 people on it. Not because I have you know two hundred thousand people leapt when I said jump, but it's spread out from the savage love readers and podcast listeners to their social networks, um, and that's very gratifying. And I don't want to abuse it. You know, I try to like pick and choose now the things that I'm going to send the flying monkeys out on because you don't want to exhaust people. These are gay issues that we're talking about the two issues specifically, but it should be mentioned. It's important to mention that you appeal to both gay and straight. So you have a wide. Well, today group I threw, this, threw something up online because a high school in Texas uh, kicked a girl off the cheerleader squad because she wouldn't cheer for the guy who raped her, who was on the basketball team. She and she would cheer. She just wouldn't say his name when he was at the free throw line. When the girls were supposed to chant the name of the guy at the free throw line, he raped her, and they threw her off the cheerleading squad because she wouldn't cheer for the guy who raped her. And I put the names and numbers of the principal uh, in there. And I've used the column to try to get straight people to get off up their haunches. Uh, I, was, I sent people out um, screaming and yelling from my column when the religious right was trying to block the HPV vaccine. Because I care about women's genitals, even though I never want to go there. <laughs> Let's take a moment now to listen to some music. Dan, you got a degree in theater from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And we'll talk a little bit later more specifically about your love of musical theater. 
Here's music from what you've called one of, if not the greatest, movie musicals of all time, Cabaret. This is Maybe This Time. From the musical Cabaret by Candor and Ebb, that was Maybe This Time. You're listening to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is advice columnist, author, and musical theater buff Dan Savage. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Well, let's talk about the Savage Love column in the podcast. This uh, this sort of started it all for you. In 1991, you started writing the sex advice column that appeared in The Stranger, which is a Seattle newspaper. And now that's widely syndicated across the country and even in some other countries. The way this works, people from all over the country write or they call you with their sex and relationship questions. So I'm wondering, since you have this broad swatch of people who always contact you, what are we dealing with sexually and relationship-wise in this country? Unrealistic expectations. We have this idea about the way love and sex ought to work, and then there's the way love the way love and sex actually works, and they're in conflict. And our ideals and our reptile brains uh, have to be reconciled to one another somehow. And usually that requires some suspension of disbelief, some turnings of blind eyes, uh, a little functional dysfunctionality to make it work, to, to patch it up. You know, and monogamy is a huge problem. Fidelity is a huge problem. Sexual boredom is a huge problem. People taking each other for granted is a huge problem. When I told people that I was interviewing you, they all, everybody said, ask him about his thoughts on monogamy, because that's something that comes up every now and again in your podcast. It makes visits fairly often. And your view... Well, it's usually the problem. I don't think everyone should be in a non-monogamous relationship. I'm not prescriptive about it. I'm in a not-monogamous relationship, and that's dangerous for a gay male couple with kids to say out loud, right? Because people assume a level of promiscuity uh, that appalls even me. Um, I've been here in Bloomington for eight weeks. I haven't touched anybody. Not that I didn't want to. (laughs) A lot of really cute guys here in Bloomington. Um, But that's not the way I roll. But the problem with monogamy is... We're not any good at it. How many Elliot Spitzers, David Vitters, Bill Clintons, John Edwardses? How many times do we have to watch the same story, watch the same play before we realize that it's in the script? So I don't believe everyone should be non-monogamous. Everyone, even if you're going to be monogamous, needs to be able to acknowledge that monogamy does not is not natural, is not, and it's not easy. And love doesn't mean that you don't want to sleep with other people. Love, if you mean if you make a monogamous commitment, means you will refrain from sleeping with other people. You will still wanna, and you'll wanna bad, and you will both wanna. Um, women get away with pretending they never wanna. We have put a lie at the heart of all of our long-term romantic relationships, and then we wonder why they fall apart because two people are looking at each other, lying to each other every day about something very important, and they both know that the other is lying every day. And then they don't trust each other, oddly enough, after all that lying back and forth. And it's just it's so much healthier to be able to acknowledge, even if you are going to make a monogamous commitment, that that is going to uh, be an effort and it, it, there will be consequences to that. 
there are consequences to non-monogamy. You know, when a non-monogamous relationship falls apart, everyone blames non-monogamy. Uh, when a monogamous relationship falls apart, nobody blames monogamy. And I've observed so many relationships that were otherwise decent that could have survived for the long haul if people had just been allowed to be off leash every once in a while. It does not mean anything goes. You, know, you say you're not monogamous. But, oh, so you can sleep with anybody, anytime, anywhere. You're like, no, no. You're monogamous. Do you sleep with each other anytime, anywhere you want? No. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> monogamy is stupid and it doesn't work. People are bad at it. And that's not just my opinion. We have the divorce rate to prove it and we have – you can't open a magazine. You can't leave the house without hearing about people cheating on each other. And if we continue to find cheating on each other as a divorce-level, breakup-level offense, we are uh, – you know, packing our relationships with dynamite and blowing them up over and over and over again. I think that a relationship should be able to survive a routine infidelity because infidelity is routine and we need to reconceive how we regard it. You know, the problem is – now I'm going to rant. Go for it. For most of recorded human history, men weren't supposed to be monogamous, weren't required to be. They had concubines. They had uh, mistresses. They had more than one wife, right? Monogamy was really uh, – for women and uh, all about uh, paternal anxiety and assuaging that and enslaving women, really. And it was about control. And, you know, to the, the credit of our species, it took us however many tens of thousands of years before we realized that that wasn't egalitarian. And about 60 years, we decided to make it Pharisees, right? But we made a big mistake. Rather than giving women the same latitude and freedom that men had enjoyed, we said men had to now hue to the monogamous ideal that had always been imposed on women. And it has been a disaster for straight people and straight relationships and the children of straight people. A disaster. What sort of backlash have you had to deal with with those views? Because I'm sure stuff came your way. Oh, yeah. People freak out. You know, my favorite kind of letter is, you know, I say I say that I say that I'm in a relationship that's not monogamous. I still love my boyfriend. Husband, whatever. Husband in Canada, boyfriend in America. Love him passionately. We have a great, amazing sex life that's 98% just the two of us, right? And I get these letters from people, monogamists, insisting that we don't love each other, that we're not really committed to each other, that we couldn't possibly love each other if we were having sex with other people. And so many of these letters end with, and I know what I'm talking about because every one of my relationships has been monogamous. And what they're saying then is they have started and ended and started and ended. They are serial monogamists that when they get bored and need a little variety, they end a relationship and then move on. And so I found a way to stay in my relationship and keep it happy and healthy and long haul and I'm doing something wrong. And you, every one of my relationships has been monogamous. You're doing it right because we value monogamy over commitment. So you've been writing this column for about 20 years, doing the podcast, five years. How have your views changed? For instance, did you come to writing and doing the podcast with these views on monogamy, or have they developed? They've developed through observation, particularly the, the how passionate I am about monogamy being a problem. And again, I say if somebody wants, if a monogamous commitment is what you want, you should have it. You should go find it. And I believe that people should honor the commitments that they make. So I'm not saying everyone has to live like I live. I just think you need to be realistic. Uh, if you're with somebody for 50 years and they only cheated on you once or twice, they were good at monogamy. Not bad at it. They were good at it. And if we could only think that way, we could save a lot of marriages and, and prevent a lot of suffering uh, for kids. But my, you know, my views have changed a lot. I used to hate straight people. Now I, <laughs> now I feel bad for them. <laughs> I mean, that was the joke. When the column started, I was 26 and uh, I was going to write about straight people and straight sex with the same contempt that heterosexual advice columnists had always uh, employed writing about gay people and gay sex when it would come up in their columns. So it's mostly me sneering at straight people. And when I started writing the column, I was 26 years old. All my friends were dying of AIDS. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, ruined the world, uh, in my opinion. And, and George H.W. Bush was president, and he was just you know an extension of Ronald Reagan. And I was still really angry about the bullying I'd endured, about my friends dying, about the indifference that the culture and the society had displayed when gay people started dying of AIDS. And I was mad. And then I, you know, I took it out on straight people and it was sort of like a joke but not a joke. But then I started getting all these letters from straight people about their problems 
you know, and one day, like the Grinch, my heart grew three sizes and I started to feel bad for them, particularly straight guys. I'd never really had straight guy friends. And then I went to the stranger and like most everyone who worked there was a straight guy. And I was the gay guy answering questions from straight people. I started hanging out and drinking with straight guys. And I'd been in theater and like all my friends were fags. And I had never really hung out with straight guys. And I just realized after getting their letters and hanging out with them that it's really, it sucks to be a straight guy. They run the world, but that includes like running the 7-Eleven. Like it's not all glamour. <laughs> and heterosexual males are really fenced in because being a straight guy is defined as not being a girl and not being a fag. So anything that's remotely girly or faggy is suspect. And straight guys are policed not just by each other, but by women and by fags. So the latitude that women enjoy to like go to college and be a lesbian for 18 months, right? And have a girlfriend and then be straight identified. Nobody goes, you must be a lesbian. You couldn't. No one doubts that. Uh, or to have just one same-sex experience even. Um, or a three-way, a girl-girl-boy three-way and have some same-sex contact. In that context, nobody looks at a woman who's done all that and says, oh, she's really a dyke. She couldn't possibly have done that if she weren't. And they look at straight guys and say that, Right. Uh, and that's just like the threesome same-sex contact example. There's also like the straight guy who likes to cook, the straight guy – anything, anything that like takes them the slightest bit off this you know, Jim Belushi idea of what it means to be a straight guy uh, can bring their world crashing down. And it really undermines their identity. It makes them feel very insecure. And once I realized that, I just started to feel bad for them. And I'm getting all these letters from straight guys who, who like to cross-dress, who you know, had met the one guy, right? And they're so freaked out because they met the one guy who blipped onto their radar, who went into their reptile brain and their reptile brain wanted to make that guy pregnant. And I've met that girl. I've, you know, the lesbian firefighter who I just think is so foxy. And I go, ah, oh my God, she's so foxy, but she's a woman, but she's so foxy. She looks like Rolf from Sound of Music with muscles. (laughs) And I, I, I enjoy that feeling of being sort of dragged outside my normal uh, sexual response-a-thon. And it doesn't make me feel like I'm not gay or that I'm having a crisis. But the straight guy who meets the one guy who is feminine enough or in drag looks girly enough or whatever can have a, a crisis meltdown that leaves him impotent. How sad for the straight guys. So if there's anything that's changed in 20 years, I just – I feel really sad for straight guys. I feel sorry on the monogamy issue, on the porn issue, on the one-off same-sex attraction issue. I feel bad for them. Women are crazy. And there's not a lot of advice columnists that will say that to a woman. The women who write me. (laughs) They're loving women. (laughs) The skewed sample, right? Exactly. That I enjoy – that I get. Uh, The letters pouring in from women who think that it's cheating uh, when he looks at porn – and you just want to say, no, looking at porn allows him to have some variety without cheating. And you should be happy he looks at porn. The cool thing about the podcast is the format. So all these people will call in with questions. You'll do a, a little snippet at the beginning that's sort of a current events news type issues. And then the podcast will start with real people calling in. These are their voices, the messages that they've left. Then you'll give a response, and sometimes you'll even call them up, and you'll air the conversation that you have with the person who called. It's awesome. When did you decide to do that format? It wasn't like we picked the format. Uh, We had certain limitations that imposed that format. Uh, You know, we don't have a radio studio. It's just me and some cables in a room and a couple of tech-savvy at-risk youth. And we can't – you know, my schedule is insane. I'm always traveling and speaking and running around the country. So I can't say, you know, I tape this from 10 to noon on Thursdays every week, call me. Because I don't know where I'm going to be on any given Thursday. So uh, we record the podcast at all different hours and all different days, and then we put it out on Tuesday. Uh, so people would leave their questions, and then we started asking them to leave a phone number in case we had a follow-up question. And then we call people back, and if we can get them on the phone, on the fly, we talk. Um, what you don't hear what's often edited out is I will call somebody and they're sitting in the room with the person that they're having the issue with or they're at work or they're with their mother or they're with their kids. And we'll get them on the phone for a second and they'll go, uh, and I'll say, can you get someplace? And they'll say, yes. And then we'll sit there for 10 minutes and wait for them to get someplace. And then we'll call them back and then we'll have a conversation. So it's really ambush what we do. 
it's so great because it you're right it sets them off guard a little bit but they're talking with you really openly and it's really like two buddies having a conversation about relationship problems it's a great dynamic that you have with these callers thanks i wish we had more technical capabilities but we need to invest in a sound into this we should come here and record it Sure, if you want. (laughs) Just a couple more questions and we'll get you out of the way. You love musicals. What is your favorite musical, I have to know? Oh, that's so hard to pick. I love A Little Night Music. I'm such a Stephen Sondheim fan. I love Company. Um, I love Follies. I also love Chicago, Uh, not the movie. Uh, I like the musical. Uh, I think Cabaret, the film, is one of my all-time favorite musicals, uh, and musicals don't usually work very well on film, um, but Fosse solved it in a really brilliant way. You know, he he set the music in a performance venue with a live audience. That's always the problem with movie musicals is, you know, you watch Carousel or Oklahoma, and there's the moment at the end of the dance Nothing. where there's complete silence, right? And you need that audience. And so for Fosse to set... To, to take the musical numbers out of, you know, walking down the street and bursting into song, which is in the original stage play, just those regular musical tropes, uh, to, to, to take all those songs away and put them all on stage and have the songs on stage commenting on the, the action as opposed to people who are in living their lives bursting into song. Really brilliant. And then what he did, which was so smart, was – you know, the musical world, the cabaret world was this unreality. Like the songs were not real. And there's one moment where people burst into song and it's that garden scene, the beer garden scene where all the Germans sing tomorrow belongs to me. And Germany becomes unreal at that moment. Germany moves onto the stage of the cabaret and becomes corrupted and goes over a line. And it's so brilliant. So Cabaret the Movie is one of my favorite musicals. So South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, which is one of the best <laughs> the best movie musical in the last 10 years. Uh, I haven't seen that one. It's amazing and so smart. If you could play one role in all <laughs> of musical theater history, what would it be? The Man in the Chair and the Drowsy Chaperone. So specific. Yes. Um... The Drowsy Chaperone is this musical. Uh, it's just, do you know it? It opens, it's this, this studio apartment with a lonely gay guy sitting with his records, and he looks at the audience and goes, Oh, hello. And he's listening to a really obscure uh, musical on, uh, on vinyl, this record that he saved for this forgotten 20s musical called The Drowsy Chaperone. And, what's, and he just talks about the musical, and as he describes what's going on with each song and sets the scenes up, the actors come in, set things change, and the action happens all in his apartment, all in his imagination. And what's so beautiful about it, if you can see it, and there's still, I think, a tour going on right now. It's no longer playing in New York. This musical only exists because this man loves it so much. Uh, and that man is one of those is, – is me. He's one of those – gay guys who are a little obsessive about musical theater and that Broadway's always had this sort of awkward relationship with, this love-hate relationship with the gay weirdos who like musicals too much uh, and know them better than often the people making them or are in them uh, and are a really demanding and critical audience but worshipful at the same time. You know, the, the musical theater fact. And there's tension in that relationship between the actors and the people who make musicals and the vicious fags who love them too much. And what's so beautiful about Drowsy Chaperone, why I'd love to play that part, there's a moment at the end uh, where, you know, none of the characters in the, in the play within the play have, have acknowledged or even seen the man in the chair as he describes what's going on. And yet they all only, all these actors are long dead and this musical is forgotten. The only reason they live is because he remembers and he cares about this show. Uh, and he loves Broadway. He loves this show. And there's this moment at the end where um, he gets very upset uh, about his life, about what's going on. He's blue. That's why he's listening to these musicals, listening to this musical. He's trying to cheer himself up, and he kind of, like, crumples a little bit. And the actors who never saw him before that moment see him, and they bring him into the show. And they sit him up on this huge airplane at the end. Uh, and they love him back. And that is so was so beautiful like Broadway never loved those guys back until that moment and that's why I want to play that part because that's me (laughs) 
And that moment is so like I was li- actually listening to Drowsy Chaperone last night. That moment is so powerful, uh, particularly for a fag like me. That moment where these characters and the show loves this guy back. Okay, I'm convinced. I have to go watch it. You have to. It's a beautiful score. It's a beautiful show. Songs are amazing. Who wrote it? I don't even know. A couple of Canadians wrote it as a um, a show to be performed live at their friend's wedding. You're such a thinker and someone that people go to to find out stuff and to look for um, for opinions on things. So who do you go to? Who do you read? Who do you follow? Oh, my God. I read Andrew Sullivan every day. I read uh, Talking Points Memo. I read Joe oh My God. Uh, Toll Road. I read uh, Balloon Juice. I really am addicted to blogs now. Uh, blogs are the way things get into my head. Um, I'm, I also read newspapers. I read the New York Times every day. I try to read the Wall Street Journal every day, but some days uh, I feel like I'm going to have an aneurysm if I touch the Wall Street Journal, so I give it a pass. I'm just sort of a voracious reader, and uh, nothing quite feeds that voraciousness like blogs do now. It's just so rapid and so constant. Um, I feel like I know more about more things, uh, places, people, uh, more different kinds of politics and sexualities now because of blogs. Plug your blog. Slog.thestranger.com. You blog every day about everything under the sun. Yeah, not in the last three weeks. I've been so swamped with this It Gets Better project that I've uh, been neglecting the blog. It's been all I can do to get a Savage Love letter of the day up. But if you go to, you know, if you like Savage Love and you read the column and you read the podcast at the blog every day, I post a, a Q&A that's just for the blog. Great. Dan Savage is the writer of the Savage Love column. He does the Savage Love podcast. He's the creator of the It Gets Better video project on YouTube. And he loves musical theater. I do. So let's go out on music from the drowsy chaperone. Here is As We Stumble Along. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I'm Annie Corrigan. As we stumble along On life's funny journey As we stumble along Into the blue We look here and we look there Seeking answers anywhere Never sure of where to turn or what to do Still we bumble our way Through life's crazy labyrinth Barely knowing left from right Nor right from wrong And the best that we can do Is hope a bluebird Will sing his song As we stumble along The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.